I don't want to ask you to open a Bible to Colossians chapter 1. We turn to Scripture, to the Bible, because we want to hear what is true. And so we're looking at Colossians chapter 1. If you're using a Bible that's there in the pew rack, you can find it on page 1,165. We're looking at the work of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? We see that God reconciles sinners. God reconciles us to himself. And so we borrow this Christmas season, this month of December, as we've looked at Colossians 1, that phrase from the Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. God reconciles sinners. I want you to listen as I read Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I'd like to pray for us, and so I'll ask you to bow your heads as we ask God to apply these truths to our own lives. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in good news as it's announced to us. And yet, Lord, we are quick to slip out from under the, the guilt of sin, to shift it to another, to blame others for what has gone wrong. Lord, we are quick to minimize our sin, and so I pray that as we hear your word today, we would, admit, we would be willing to admit our great need, that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Lord, show us the good news of the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, why he came to earth, what he has accomplished for us. Father, for those that doubt the truthfulness of your word, that doubt its possibility to even speak to, to the issues we face today, I pray that as we hear your word proclaimed, we would see it applied by the power of your spirit to our own hearts, that you would show us the truth that is here before us. Father, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel the excitement of this season, and yet we feel the sorrow and sadness of those we have lost, of relationships broken, and so we ask for your continued peace, your reconciling work in our lives and relationships. We come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Once upon a time, all right, you only need to hear those few words and you already are trained for what would come next. You're going to hear a story. You're meant to use your imaginations. Just a simple phrase cues you to the significance of what's about to be said once upon a time. Well, here in this passage, the structure, the way in which Paul begins verse 21, the structure then of verse 22 shows us how we should be listening. Look at the first word of verse 21, once. Paul is speaking about what you once were. And then verse 22, but now. Once, but now. It's a common Pauline. It's, it's the way Paul writes in many of his letters. 
He's talking to, to new Christians and he's telling them, you once were this, but now God has done this for you. And so we're just going to use that simple structural outline. So you grammarians out there, you can get excited because it means we're just following the grammar of the passage. Those of you less inclined, we're just going verse 21, then verse 22, then verse 23. You'll be able to follow along. Because what does Paul do? He begins with, the, with verse 21 there. Once you were alienated from God. He's speaking to a group of Christians, a gathered church, and telling them what they once were, reminding them of their history. He's drawing out on the, on the storyboard of their lives what they once were. They were, verse 21, alienated from God. They were enemies in their minds because of their evil behavior. Now the language here is, pretty negative. It's stark. It confronts us. And, and we might be okay with the very end of the verse, evil behavior. I mean, now we don't like the word evil, but we might be willing to say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not perfect. There are a few things in my life that I would fix, that I would change. I'm, I'm okay if we leave the problem really at just a, a couple of things maybe that I've done wrong. But Paul doesn't, doesn't leave it there. He, he calls your behavior evil. You have done that which is offensive to God. You have rebelled against God such that you are enemies, not only in the things that you did, you are enemies of God in your minds. The way that you think, the way that you live is, has been corrupted by your sin. It's not merely that you've done a couple of bad things. It's not merely that you, you need to sort of fix a couple of minor points in your life. No, you are an enemy of God in your mind. The way that you think, the way that you orient your life, everything about you is an enemy with God, such that, Paul is saying, you are alienated from God. You have been separated apart from God because of what you have done. Now, this is terrible language. And, and, it, and it should be offensive. Because you might be thinking, I'm not sure I agree it's all quite that bad. Paul. I mean, maybe you've just had a, a bad glass of eggnog. Maybe, maybe you're just not feeling well today. It doesn't seem all that bad to us because we're, we're good at justifying ourselves, at, at minimizing our failures and mistakes, at sort of explaining away what we've done wrong. But what Paul is saying is, no, every part of you is in enmity with God. You are rebelling against God. And maybe you're here today just because somebody else dragged you along. You're here to make somebody else happy. And so you're kind of thinking, I, like, I, I don't really want to get into it. I think I'm fine. Like, I don't think it's that big a deal. You, you, you kind of want to just say, like, I, I'll just be agnostic or apathetic to what's going on here. Paul is removing that possibility. He's saying those of you, even the ones that, those of you sitting here today that feel apathetic, that feel like, well, I, I don't want to make a choice. I just, I, 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 I want to remain agnostic. I don't, I don't want to be forced into a decision. Paul is saying, you have already made a decision. You are alienated from God. You are an enemy of God in your mind, your whole life in rebellion against God because of your evil behavior. Now, if Paul's structure ended here, once this is what you were, period, end of sentence, end of story, end of sermon, you might be happy because you could get on with the rest of your day, but that would be terrible news. And so we have what 
my dad sometimes likes to say is the most important word in the Bible. Look at verse 22, how it begins. Most important word in the Bible, but. All right, you got it, right? All right, if you're an elementary school kid, middle school kid, and you're listening, most, your pastor just said the most important word in the Bible is but. See, and, and the reason it's important is once this is what you were, you were an enemy of God. If it ends there, you are without hope. But now, verse 22, but now, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. God has reconciled you. What were you? An enemy of God. God has done the reconciling work. It is of God's initiative. And remember how, how big and grand the work of, of Jesus has been described for us here in, in Colossians 1. If you, if you were with us last week, we saw how Jesus' reconciling work is for everyone everywhere. Everyone is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look, look back at verse 20 just to, to see this. That's the verse that came before what we read. That, that God, through Jesus, is reconciling to himself all things. This is verse 20. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God brings peace to a fractured universe. I mean, that sounds like the tagline you'd put on a movie poster for a, for a new Marvel superhero movie. Peace for a fractured universe. And what Paul does is he takes that grand and glorious statement and he makes it very personal then in verses 21 and 22. The previous verses he's been speaking really in the third person about what Jesus has done. He's, he's sort of stepped back to look at the grandeur of Jesus. And now in verse 21 and 22, he gets very personal. Once you, you. He's pointing at, at the Colossians and saying, this is what is true for you. Paul switches the way he's speaking and makes it, makes it direct at them. The cosmic scale of salvation had its goal as the salvation of the Colossian believers. Do you hear that good news then? God's grand plan applies to you. The gospel announced to you. God is reconciling all things to himself. God reconciles you. But how? How does this reconciliation take place? Look again at verse 22. God has reconciled you, how? By Christ's physical body through death. All right, now Paul could have just said through the death of Jesus, but he's, he's even more explicit. He talks about the body of Christ. And even more than that, not merely the body, but, but he, he adds the adjective by his physical body. Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem, had, had human flesh, a human body, truly the son of Mary. The physical body of Jesus so that he could stand in our place, take our sins. He could reconcile us to God. We who were enemies brought near through the body of Jesus Christ through his death. Through the death of Jesus Christ. And see, if, if, you're, if, if you're trying to just shrug this off and say, hey, I don't think it's a big deal. I'm just here because grandmom dragged me here. I just need to make it through and get out. And probably I'll have to do it again tomorrow, but I can get through this week. And if you're thinking that, look at what 
Look at what God has done to reconcile you. See, the death of Christ shows us the depth of our sin. You were an enemy with God. The only solution was the death of Jesus, the Savior. The Son of God, born of Mary, dying in your place. That's the argument Paul is making here in verse 22. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. And so then what does this, what does this death of Jesus accomplish? Look, look again at how verse 22 continues. We've been reconciled through the death of Christ. In order that, verse 22, God can, pre- can present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish, wholly, free from accusation. Now, now Paul here, and we don't see this in the English translations, he, he alliterates here. Each of, these, each of these little phrases, each of these words begins with the same letter, alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, which today's sermon isn't alliterated, but if Next week's sermon is alliterated. We'll use it. I'll use this as a good excuse because it is a mnemonic to help you remember to see what is Paul doing. He's saying you are one who is presented before God as holy. Paul is using the language of worship to describe what Jesus' death has accomplished. You have been made holy, set apart for God in all purity and goodness because Jesus Christ is holy. You are one who is without blemish like the sacrifice brought to the altar without any impurity in it. God has, has, has shown you to be one without blemish. He has dealt with your sin. And then he switches from the language of worship to the language of the courtroom, that you are free from accusation. You who are a sinner, that's what was true of you. The accusation that would come, the list of your sins, the indictment read out. You are one who is guilty, but now you are free from accusation. Declared to be blameless, there is no one who can accuse you because your sins have been paid for. Paul uses this language elsewhere, and so, so flip with me to Romans chapter 8. It's toward the beginning of your Bibles. Romans is the first of Paul's letter in our New Testament. It's first not because it was written first. It's first because it's the longest. So they just stacked the books, I think, in a way that made them easier to carry. You know, if you're walking down the halls at school, you put the big books at the bottom. And so, you know, you start with Romans. So, so go toward the, the front of your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 is, the, is really the culmination of the argument Paul has made that you are a sinner, but God sent Jesus to die for you. And so in Romans 8, Paul uses, again, this legal language we see him repeat in Colossians. He uses this legal language to describe what God has done for us. He says there is no condemnation, there is no judgment, there is no penalty placed upon you because Jesus has already paid it. Look at Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. See, Paul is saying, in God's grand courtroom, there is no punishment left for you. The punishment, the condemnation has already been taken. Because, look at verse 3. God has done this. This is the end of Romans 8, verse 3. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin in sinful man. Jesus took your sins upon himself. There is no punishment left to be given 
There is no condemnation left for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And yet you and I live, live our lives feeling the, the weight of our sin, feeling its pollution, and feeling like, like, I still feel like I could get caught. I still feel trapped by it. But when we come to, to Christ by faith, our sins have been completely forgiven. There is no one left to rightly accuse you. That's where Paul will take the argument at the end of Romans 8. And so, so, so jump to the end of Romans 8, to Romans 8, verse 33. Paul is asking the question, but I still feel guilty, and so, so who, would, who would condemn me? And so he asks the question in Romans 8, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is saying, there is only one who can condemn you, Christ Jesus. But look at how he describes Jesus in verse 34 of Romans 8. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus, the only one who could rightly condemn you, stood in your place and took your sin, and then God raised him from the dead. Jesus, who now declares you to be innocent. Or in the language of Colossians 1, you are holy in God's sight. You are without blemish. You are free from accusation. Now, if we ended the sermon here, I fear that, that you would take this structure of you once were, but now, and sort of kind of nod along, shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that was nice. That was a little helpful reminder. But, but Paul won't leave it here. Paul wants you to, to take the holiness that has been declared about you and, and live it out. Paul wants you to apply what has been said about you. As we go back to Colossians 1, you see how, how, he, how he continues. In verse 21, he says, once you were. Verse 22, but now God has reconciled you. And then so then verse 23, you've got something to do. He says, you must continue. God has reconciled you. You have been changed. The holiness you have in your status should be lived out in your life. Pastor Jared Wilson describes his church's first days as a brand new church plant in Vermont. The town in which they moved, most of their neighbors weren't real happy there was a new church coming to town. There were a few that welcomed them, but there were some that actually vehemently opposed the beginning of this new church. They didn't want the church to be given an occupancy permit for the, the building that they were using, for the, the floor of the, the building that they had rented out. Township council meetings were built on gossip as people came to complain. Tensions were, were high. And one Sunday during a worship service, a contractor entered the, the lower level of the building, right below where the church service is taking place, and it seemed like he was making as much noise as was possible dumping lumber, leaving equipment running that he wasn't even using, running equipment as loud as he could. And so, so one of the ushers went downstairs and, and tried to politely ask him, could you, just, could you just wait a few minutes until the worship service is, is done? And then in a voice loud enough to be heard even upstairs, the contractor cursed him out and said, no way. He was here to get his work done and he didn't care what else was happening. So the church endured. They tried to listen over the noise of the chaos around them. 
And at the end of the service, there were a few men in the church that said, no, we, this has to be fixed. We will not tolerate this. This has to be remedied. And so they decided to go downstairs. They're going to handle it. But they didn't handle it the way that maybe I would have wanted to. They offered to help. They spent the rest of that day helping this contractor finish his project. Trying to show the reconciling work of the gospel. Having just worshipped and praised God, they came to confront not, not out of anger, but out of love. See, your defiance in God's face is an assault on his honor and majesty and power and glory, yet he has reconciled you. And that reconciliation should overflow into your life. And I suspect, I suspect in the next few days, you'll be forced to sit down at a table or, or, or be shoulder to shoulder, maybe even in a car, long car ride, with somebody with whom you need to be reconciled. Somebody that you have to spend time with, but you'd rather not if you could choose. What reconciling work does God want to do in your life today? How, with whom do you need to be reconciled today? Because Paul is, is letting us see that, that what, what is true about us has to work itself out in our lives. Look, look again at verse 23. Paul says, you must continue in your faith. You must be someone who is established and firm. He, the, the language of, of building a building, a building that is firm and secure, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. But look, look at the, the first word of verse 23. If. If you continue in your faith. That means everything that Paul said in verses 21 and 22 is conditional upon you actually doing something. It's not universally true for everyone, not even everyone in this room likely, that you have been reconciled to God. And, and now we, and as, as Presbyterians, maybe this is a, a, a greater danger for us than others. We might want to stop here and say, but, but wait, we know that God's plan was not only began with, with my own sin, it actually stretches all the way back before the creation of the world. God's plan stretches all the way to, to the, the, the future of, of, of God's glorious kingdom. And so I know that I stand secure. Paul believed that. Paul taught that. That's why we teach that. But what does Paul do? He makes this verse conditional because he's offering to you a real warning. You should not presume upon the grace of God if you walk out of here and do whatever you want. If you walk out of here and continue to li live a life of open rebellion. See, and maybe you're here merely because mom or dad or a grandparent has dragged you along. The warning it brought to you, whether you've been here week after week or year after year, the warning comes that you must, you must believe. You must respond by faith. But for every one of us, Paul's warning comes that we know the reconciling work of God because we continue in faith. We understand it because we, we live it out. We cling to it. We, we hold on to the hope that is offered to us in the gospel. See, there is no room in Paul's theology. There is no room in the Christian life for complacency. Yes, God's grace is a wonderful gift, but it's a gift that has to be received and responded to. And this good news then, then works itself out into our lives. 
Paul says that this gospel message is the gospel that you heard. That the word gospel just means good news. I mean, we, we only ever use it in religious contexts today. We only ever use the word gospel in church. But, but in the ancient world, if, if the king had a big announcement to make, if his son was getting married, if, if the, the child of a king had been born, he would announce good news, gospel, for his people to hear. But the gospel message here, the good news, is a good message, look at the end of verse 23, that is meant to be announced to, to every creature under heaven. That's why Paul will say that he is a servant of this message. Part of how we hold on to the hope which is ours is we give it away. As you tell other people this week, and I suspect this week, even if the, the other 51 weeks of the year you, you struggle to figure out a way to talk about Jesus in your ordinary life, this week you will be given multiple excuses to do so. As you on Christmas Eve and Christmas, think about what these holidays are. I, I remember being at a family gathering as a child with, with my extended family and one of my aunts when my dad began to talk about the Christmas story, the arrival of Jesus at a Christmas family party, uh, objected and said, do you have to make everything religious? See, because Christmas is obviously, should be obvious, inherently religious. It is about the good news which is announced. And so you and I have the privilege then of making that known. As we tell others, we are reminded of the hope which is ours. As we announce it to others, we hear good news. As we tell people, and, and Paul says, he, he actually, he, he says it, it, it needs to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Or maybe your translation says, in all creation. In, in either translation, it means everyone everywhere needs to hear this good news. So that Paul is a servant of of that good news. And that means you and I as the church need to announce good news. But I also know that we tend to, we tend to hear that kind of verse, that everybody needs to hear this message. We tend to hear that kind of universal claim that everybody needs to respond. We, we, we hear it this way. We hear it as narrow and restrictive. In the, who do you think you are? to tell me what to believe kind of way. When we hear that language of every creature under heaven, everywhere in all of creation, this gospel message applies. We hear it in a restrictive way. I think part of that reason is we've, we've, we've made sin so palatable that it's not really a big deal. Like your, your sin, I mean, get yourself cleaned up a little bit, but then you'll be fine. Part of the problem is we've, we've made our sin not a big deal, but, but part of the problem is we, we confuse the gospel message as, as bad news. The gospel is good news. See, Paul is making the argument here. Colossians, you should believe this message because it is a message for everyone everywhere. See, he's, he's saying the universal claim of the gospel should make it more believable to you. And, 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 and we as modern people think, I don't think that's how it works. Uh, Paul, I think you've gotten your argument backwards. Because that seems, Paul, like you're living this very narrow-minded way thinking there's only one message. All right, but but think, of it, think of it this way with me. Imagine you had a cure for a debilitating disease, an easy and effective way to bring, to bring care to, to people everywhere. 
what would be the more generous way to respond? Would it be to limit it to people that you find personally compelling? People that are exactly like you? To just sort of, you know, let everybody, you know, let everybody go about their own way? Or would the more generous and open-minded thing, if you had a solution to a worldwide problem, be to make it available to everyone everywhere, regardless of race or ethnicity or, or educational background or, or financial status or social standing, which is the more generous way to live? By making good news available to everyone everywhere. That's Paul's argument. The universal claim of the gospel isn't, isn't narrow-minded. It's wonderfully generous. Jesus Christ died to reconcile you to God. That's the good news which is offered to the whole world. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. You have good news to share. Will you share it this week? God reconciles sinners. Virginia Pradhan begins her story. She says, like most people, I was born with a hunger and thirst for truth and freedom. Unfortunately, she says, I was born in communist Romania under the brutal totalitarian regime of Nicolae Ceausescu, a country where simply questioning government policies could lead to imprisonment, torture, or even death. In her search for truth, Virginia decides to go to law school, but she finds out after graduation she's placed in a job where most of what she does is merely rubber stamp government decisions. Whether they were good or bad, they get passed along. So she finds herself in a hopeless system in a hopeless country when a client of hers who seems totally different comes, a man whose life is chaos, and yet he always has a smile, a man whose circumstances shouldn't leave him with so much contentment. And so she says to him, I wish I had what you have in your life. I wish I had your sense of peace and happiness. So he asks Virginia, do you go to church? Yes, I sometimes go on Christmas or Easter. So when he asks her to join him at church that Sunday, she thinks, I... I should decline. The risk is too great. Churches in this country don't have much freedom. But she relents and joins this man and his family and hears the gospel proclaimed. The God reconciles sinners. She finds her meaning and purpose in the truth that is offered through Jesus Christ. Now, after her baptism, then, she begins publicly defending Christians who have been accused by crimes by the government those facing imprisonment for transporting Bibles, for sharing their faith, or even for worshiping in the privacy of their own homes, let alone gathering in public worship. Her activism makes her now a public target. She finds her tires on her car slashed. She's held at different points under house arrest. She's bullied, even at one point being physically thrown from the sidewalk into oncoming traffic. Then late at night, one, after a long day in court, her legal assistant pokes her head into her office and says, there's a, there's a guy in the waiting room demanding to see you. He says he's got to talk to you about an important case. 
So the man enters her office. A giant of a man who pulls back his coat and pulls a gun out of his holster. And he says, you have failed to heed the warnings you have been given. I've come to finish the matter. I'm here to kill you. Virginia's hands begin to shake. Her, her chin begins to tremble. She's alone in a room with her assassin. But she begins to pray, and a peace spreads upon her. She looks at this man in front of her, her enemy, but sees that he's really an enemy of God, and it leads her to a place of compassion. And so she asks her assassin, Have you ever asked yourself, Why do I exist? Why am I here? What's my purpose? She just keeps talking. She tells him he's an enemy of God. We're all sinners, she says. But the good news is that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. As she continues to speak, he puts the gun back in his holster. He sits down. He puts his hands on his face as the anger drips away, he relents and says, you're right. The people who sent me here, they're crazy. They're evil. I need Christ. Her enemy reconciled. Her would-be assassin offered the hope of the gospel. Because she understands God reconciles sinners. God has reconciled me through the death of Jesus Christ, through the physical body of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. This gospel is, it has, has power over everyone, every creature under heaven. And so with boldness, take this gospel, take hold of this hope once you are enemies of God, but God has reconciled you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, even as we hear the, the clarity, the condemnation of, of our sins, Lord, we are still quick to slither out from, from judgment, to attempt to justify ourselves, to make ourselves appear more right. And so, Father, I pray that you would let us feel the full weight of our sin. But let us turn in hope to Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who sit here today doubting the truthfulness of this message, I pray that you would confront them with the hope of your gospel, with the good news of your reconciling work. Lord, make us bold this week as we share with friends and neighbors, with classmates, with teammates, as we share the good news of what you have done for us. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.